Welcome to the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. We hope you find this episode helpful and informative. And of course, we have other episodes on our Podbean podcast page and our YouTube page for the video version. And our website has a host of other resources at multifaithmatters.org. And we encourage you to stop by there. And of course, uh, keep in mind that we are a nonprofit organization. And if you find the website and the work of Multi-Faith Matters helpful, as we try to tackle some of the most important social and cultural issues of our day as informed by religion, and as we try to uh, model respectful conversations through deep religious difference, if you find all of that helpful and would like to help support this work, uh, please consider visiting our patrons page where you can be a regular online supporter through as little as one, three, or $5 a month. Or, of course, uh, our, you can make a one-time donation through uh, our website, again, at multifaithmatters.org. Hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thank you for watching and listening. This is the Multifaith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. I'm John Moorhead, the uh, host of the Multi-Faith Matters podcast, and uh, I'm privileged today to have a couple of guests that I've interacted with previously. I used to be one of the editors of an electronic journal called Sacred Tribes Journal that started out dealing with new religious movements and then kind of more broadly dealt with uh, religion in general and dealt with uh, various religion and cultural phenomenon. And we did a special issue on dark green religion. I encountered a book by Braun Taylor uh, with that uh, title, and it was fascinating. At that, around that time, also Avatar had come out, and uh, that science fiction film dealt with a lot of environmental themes and the problems in the West with environmental destruction. And I've always been uh, somewhat interested in this. Uh, I do a lot of writing and editing, and my writing career, if you want to call it that, started in the 1970s in Northern California with a small typewriter as I wrote letters to the editor about topics that I was uh, interested in, including uh, uh, saving the whales. And uh, I was a big supporter of Greenpeace and these kind of things. So these kinds of concerns about the environment have always been on my radar. And so I reapproached uh, a couple of colleagues that we did that special issue of the journal with, Bron Taylor and Lauren Wilkinson. And uh, they're coming from different perspectives on the same topic, but they have a lot of areas in common where they agree as well as some disagreements. So we're gonna explore that today. And I'm gonna try and help with this conversation and not get in their way, they're the experts. But uh, I'm gonna begin by uh, having these gentlemen uh, introduce themselves. Bron, let's start with you and thank you both for being on the program. Uh, thanks for having me, John. Great to see you, Lauren, and uh, nice to be talking with you and your listeners. Um, well, I'm Bron Taylor. I'm a professor of religion, nature, and ethics at the University of Florida. Technically, my, I was hired here as the Samuel S. Hill Chair of Environmental Ethics here in Gainesville, Florida. Um, and I focus on religion and nature, environmental ethics, and social ethics, uh, both uh, philosophically, and I also study kind of social scientifically the role and the entanglement of religion and nature in the world's religions as a whole, and 
as well outside the world's religions in grassroots social movements and so forth. Now, you might wonder uh, how all this, how I ended up doing these, this kind of uh, somewhat strange um, disciplinary work. Well, uh, as a teenager, I got interested in religion in the Jesus movement in Southern California. I uh, ran around um, doing evangelical work with Youth with a Mission, uh, then worked with Campus Life Youth for Christ in high school, in college at Cal State Chico in Northern California. I was a chapter leader of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And after that, I went to Fuller Evangelical Theological Seminary in Pasadena. And there I wanted to focus my studies on Christian ethics. And after that, I continued that interest uh, when I went to the University of Southern California to study theological and social ethics, where I eventually earned my PhD. Uh, when in seminary, as it happened, um, I was involved with a bunch of uh, evangelical outdoors enthusiasts, and uh, we discovered Lauren Wilkinson's fabulous book, Earthkeeping. And it was a wonderful book to discover, for I was disturbed not only by the church's apparent indifference to the suffering of the poor, that's a generalization, but it certainly was my experience, just wasn't high on the radar, but also by its uh, apparent lack of interest in the natural environment. I knew from uh, my own, that my own environmental concern did not really come from the church, but from the privilege I had of, of being taken to the deserts and mountains of California by my father, who was a geologist. He was also a Sierra Club member. So while in college and then through graduate school, uh, I also served as a state park lifeguard and for half of those 15 years as a peace officer as well. So I was learning a lot about resource management uh, and these wonderful ecosystems in the state of California. My journey as a Christian became challenging during seminary as I sought to understand the age old question of why God said, a God said to be all powerful and loving could cause or allow such great suffering in the world that he was said to create. I read all the justifications, AKA the fancy word for this is the theodicies, the effort to explain the ways of God to man, uh, written by the most brilliant Christian minds throughout the centuries. Ultimately, I found uh, these rationales logically flawed and not convincing. What really drove it home though, was after seminary, a fellow seminarian tracked me down in Germany where I was studying German and arriving unexpectedly, we went for a long philosophical walk as, we, as was our custom. And then to paraphrase at one point in the conversation, he said, well, if there is such a God who created the world and uh, then causes or permits such widespread suffering, then the only moral stand is, that is to, to take is in direct opposition to that God. Then as now, I really had no rejoinder. And the more I looked at the scriptures and in particular the view of nature provided in them, the more confirmed I became that this tradition in its orthodox forms anyway was not compelling and its metaphysical claims uh, implausible. So I drifted afterward to looking for a more compelling understanding of the world and the human placed in it. I found it not in other religious traditions, which were in their own ways often less plausible and compelling, uh, and instead began to find it in an evolutionary and ecological worldview. Now, I know that Lauren and John, that with regard to foundational understandings of the universe, we're not on the same page. I know, Lauren, that you think that without a foundation in religion and Christianity in particular, that there can be no found, uh, strong foundation for ethics in general, let alone uh, environmental ethics. 
Yours is a longstanding position expressed by many that ethics is dependent on religion. Well, I've come to disagree with that position, or at least I disagree with it uh, if we have a narrow definition of religion that requires belief in some invisible or usually invisible divine being or beings. I disagree as a historian and social scientist who studies people and their cultures, for we know that many people are highly moral who have no such beliefs. The Apostle Paul recognized this, of course, when preaching to the Romans, and this is why there's a natural law tradition in Christianity, which averts that by observing nature and thinking critically, you can surmise a lot about what constitutes good moral behavior. I also disagree as one who finds compelling these days an evolutionary understanding regarding why pro-social and pro-environmental moralities emerge. Such values evolve because they increase the likelihood that humans will flourish and reproduce. It's also the case that religion has often been entangled in a positive way in the evolution of morality and ethics. It's also the case that as our species continues to evolve, we often leave behind moral views that, that experience over time reveals to be flawed in some ways. Think for example about the rejection of tribalism in its many forms, including racist and sexist views. It's important in very important ways, I would suggest Jesus rejected earlier forms of tribalism prevalent during his time. Now we can also consider this when we think about the evolution of environmental ethics. I think the Abrahamic traditions, namely Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, who trace their lineage to the prophet Abraham, are profoundly ambivalent about the natural environment and the diverse organisms that constitute it. For those who want to find in it pro-environmental values and responsibility, that's possible. And this approach Lauren wonderfully exemplifies. Yet the embrace of the living world is also anemic and partial in these traditions. So in my view, one needs to cherry pick them. One needs to embrace the pro-nature themes and ignore or reject the ambivalent or anti-nature themes to get a holistic environmental ethics. For many evangelicals who have what we might call a high view of scripture, namely that God was directly involved in its construction and there are no errors in it, or at least no morally significant errors in it, this is a bridge too far. As a post-evangelical, it was a bridge too far for me and so I had to leave the tradition. And indeed I had to leave Christianity even though there's a great deal that I prize in it, especially the teachings of Jesus about peacemaking, forgiveness, and social justice. I do wish, however, he had provided a strong and clear message about protecting the natural environment. Had he done so, Christians would presumably be far less ambivalent, if not suspicious, about environmentalism and environmentalists. Now, that's probably enough as an introduction, maybe too much. Um, there are a few other things that, as time allows, I can speak to, such as the biblical themes, emissions, and moral priorities that make it hard for Christians to fully embrace the environmental cause, social scientific research that documents that individuals affiliated with the world's predominant religions, including Christianity, are less likely to be pro-environmental than individuals who are otherwise similar demographically, the ways one can ground ethics on nature alone via evolutionary and ecological understandings that promote the well-being of human beings as, as well as other organisms and ecosystems, and how some of these ways are themselves religious, or at least religion resembling in important ways. These, as John mentioned, uh, I called dark green religions in a book by that title. And I believe they undergird many of the most ardent environmental advocates. Moreover, I think that like Christianity 2000 years ago, they have significant and growing cultural traction around the world. So anyway, there's probably a few things we can argue about uh, and talk about in uh, that prolegomena. And it's nice to be with you again. Well, Bron, thank you so much for that. Um, I, I appreciate, again, I like 
to begin these things with people telling their stories because we don't just hold ideas in the abstract. It's a part of our Absolutely. personal journeys and hearing your journey uh, is helpful, I think, for folks who are watching and listening. Uh, there's a lot to respond to there. And of course, what this podcast is about is having respectful conversations over deep differences. And you've certainly opened that door for that conversation. Sure. So, uh, Lauren, would you uh, share your story and maybe respond to some yeah, of Yeah, well, I didn't, uh, I didn't so much outline um, uh, uh, my own position as, as much as Brown has done. I just want to talk a little bit about who I am and how I got where I am. Uh, I was born... Um, in the middle of World War II, if you want to figure out the age, you can figure out how old I am. Uh, grew up um, by the beginning of a period that uh, I noticed Braun calls the great acceleration in one of his works, uh, when technology began to really take off. But I, I lived, grew up in a kind of back, backwoods, backwater community, uh, uh, farm family uh, in Oregon, um, along a river. Our main job was cutting down the trees so we could have field to grow crops on. Um, but it was a wonderful childhood. And I, uh, I, I grew up um, wandering through those forests and with a deep, deep love of them, the forests and the river. Um, I, uh, I grew up a Christian, uh, uh, non-denominational, non-reflective non Christianity. Um, and Fortunately, I've never felt much tension between, as, as I grew into a deeper scientific understanding, never felt much tension between the scientific and the biblical story. Um, I saw them as two complementary ways of dealing with the, uh, the same gift, the same mystery that we find ourselves in every morning when we wake up. Um, but like, as, as Braun says, and I, I, I certainly agree with him on this, just on so many things, I found very few resources in my tradition, in my faith, for understanding how the Christian gospel, which I affirmed and, and experienced was good news for me, was good news for the Douglas fir and the salmon and the trilliums that I experienced uh, when I walked through the woods. Um, and... So I, uh, I grew up, uh, went to college. I, I like to point out that the last, when people accuse me of being a rabid uh, tree hugger, um, and I have been arrested for protesting some clear-cut logging here in BC, um, that the last old growth Douglas firs on our property were sent down to provide money to send me to college. And so I, I, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I have foot in both worlds in that, in that sense. Um, at college, I, I, uh, I went to Wheaton College, which was, a, I think, was and still is probably one of the best, most thoughtful Christian liberal arts colleges. Oh, yeah. My wife went there, Lauren. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I began, uh, so did mine. That's why I, I met her in a Victorian literature class. <laughs> um, that's where I began a lifelong process of trying to hold these two stories together, the biblical story and the scientific story. Um, I had, I got majored in anthropology there. I went on to get a degree in literature, a uh, degree in theology and a degree in an interdisciplinary degree. Like you, Bron, I, I, my, I, I am so interdisciplinary that yeah. it's hard to describe what I teach. 
<laughs> and what I've been spending my life doing. Um, for I, I taught for a while at Seattle Pacific, went for a while uh, to the Oregon Extension where Dave Willis, whom I think you will know. We had yeah, I know, Dave, yeah. Went to, was that seminary with Dave? He was one of the ones really? who... He, okay. he may have been well, the very one who turned me on to your book, honestly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, he, uh, he's still based at the Oregon Extension. But in 81, I came to Regent College, uh, which is a graduate school of Christian studies at, uh, affiliated with the University of British Columbia here in Canada. I've uh, been professor, now retired, um, of environmental, of uh, interdisciplinary studies there, um, helping a, a wonderfully diverse group of adult Christians from around the world connect their vocation with their, with their faith. And one of the things I continue doing there, and we started this at Seattle Pacific, uh, is look specifically at, uh, at these big questions of what does it mean for, how do we understand the Christian story in relationship to the, to the natural world and to growing um, environmental crises? Um, and I, uh, so I, we started an environmental studies program there in 1974. I think it was one of the first Christian environmental studies programs. Um, and uh, from there, had an opportunity to work at Calvin for a year with a group of scholars that produced uh, the Earthkeeping book that I edited. Um, and after a brief time at the Oregon Extension, came to Regent, uh, where we've continued that kind of teaching um, in uh, courses in the wilderness, taking people out, outdoors, which is a crucial thing to do. Um, a, a very influential course we've taught over the years. It's named the boat course because we take people in a week-long rowing sailing trip in, uh, mm. in old replica ships boats around the islands here, looking at the kinds of issues we're talking about today, really. Um, also, we've taught a course, uh, my wife and I, uh, on, on issues related to food. Uh, the whole range of, of ethical, moral, environmental, theological, philosophical, uh, scientific issues that, uh, that relate to what we eat. Um, so, and for the last many years, I've been working on a book tentatively titled Circles and the Cross, Cosmos, Consciousness, Christ and the Human Place in Creation. And it's, uh, too, is really about the subject of this conversation. Um, I, uh, let, let me, let me just begin with a few points of agreement and disagreement with, uh, with what Bron has said, and then we can open up the conversation. Uh, I'm com in complete agreement with what John didn't actually, or, or Bron didn't actually articulate, but uh, is the background of what he says, that the planet is in a, in a dire state and that it's the result of human activity. I don't think we would disagree on that. Right. Humans have made a mess of things. Um, I'm also in complete agreement, and maybe this isn't, wasn't so obvious either in what John said, but I think we would agree on this, that the, the prevailing enlightenment scientific paradigm does not provide uh, resources, adequate resources for dealing with this crisis. Um, I, I have no, no 
trouble with science, including uh, evolutionary science and the story it tells, but it doesn't tell us enough. It doesn't give us the, 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 the resources to, ask, to answer the big questions that our situation um, um, calls for. And this takes me to the points of disagreement, I think, with Brown. Um, one, and we can, we can work more on this, uh, the disagreement that, that the idea of a creator or of creation is, is a dead end, uh, that it doesn't have uh, adequate resources for dealing uh, with these uh, issues that we face. Um, and I, I think I disagree as well that the alternative to the current um, reductive scientism or scientific paradigm, um, which let me say, uh, seems to me leaves you ultimately with the starting point that the universe is an accident, that it has no purpose. As one cosmologist says, the, the universe is one of the things that happens from time to time, but it, but it has no purpose, which ultimately suggests that our thinking about it, our making studies of it uh, has no purpose either. And of course we, we, we can't believe that um, or we wouldn't even get started. Um, I think the alternative to that view um, of a kind of, uh, kind of reductive scientism is, uh, Braun suggests, is a form of pantheism or, or animism, that the idea that the universe itself is, is, all, is, is divine, is sacred, and, um, and that it is perhaps we are the universe's way of beginning to think about itself. Um, the universe is waking up in, in human consciousness. Um, I, I don't think you can get there from the starting point of, a, of an accidental universe, which I think is the only alternative to what I have always believed that the universe is not just nature, not just the environment, but is a creation. It is the result of a, of of a will and a consciousness um, that is other than the universe. Um, I think I'll stop there and uh, we'll, uh, um, we'll, yeah, we can start some conversation. That's great groundwork. Abron, do you wanna to respond to some of the others that you guys carry on the conversation? Sure, unless you wanna jump in right now, John. No, 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 I'm fine. I'm, I'm having a good time listening and as hopefully the listeners will after okay. this is published. Well, let me just mention one more on what I think is a, maybe a key point. And that is the idea that, um, that the idea of an accidental universe doesn't make sense. I, I've been quite impressed recently by a, a book, a simple, small book by Thomas Nagel. I, I just picked it up here called Mind and Cosmos. Uh, everything's reversed in there, isn't it? Um, the, uh, and it, it, he, he's a noted, important philosopher. Um, he is kind of a reluctant atheist. Uh, he, he, unlike Braun, he never started as a believer. He just can't be, bring himself to believe in a God. Uh, and kind of, I think he almost impresses some, some regret about that. But this book, uh, he's again, highly respected philosopher and, and, an, and a, a, an avowed atheist called Mind in the Cosmos. 
has the subtitle, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. He's not questioning the details of evolution or the evolutionary story. He's just saying it's not enough. It doesn't explain the mystery of the universe, the singularity of the universe, and this, especially the mystery of our consciousness of it. Who, why does this collection of stardust that we're made out of, um, why is it not only um, an, an it, but an I? And I don't think that question can be adequately answered by, a, by an animist or pantheist viewpoint. Um, I will have a lot of sympathy with those viewpoints. So I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah, great, great thoughts, great thoughts. Um, a lot to, to talk about there. Um, uh, uh, you probably have read Lauren Isley. Um, oh, he's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, I thought he, I thought he would be. I love Lauren Isley, and uh, of course, uh, you have no problem with the, the you know, with an, a, an evolutionary understanding of biocomplexity here on planet Earth. And he was, uh, he was uh, a naturalist, um, an anthropologist, um, and uh, clearly had a deep sense of the sacredness of life and has written uh, some of the most evocative uh, works about that. And there's one passage in which he says essentially, um, uh, after almost mentioning in passing that he's an evolutionist, then he says, but he makes an, a certain acknowledgement. He says, nothing in the world explains the world. Okay. Now that's, uh, that has some affinity with, with what, you're, uh, what you're saying. It's not exactly the same thing. Um, what he's acknowledging is that when it comes to ultimate ca causes, um, you know, what kickstarted the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe, um, he's sort of acknowledging, and I think he's saying that's beyond our ken. I like that word ken, although it's you know I didn't know what it meant for decades, but um, it's beyond our, it's beyond what we can know. That's kind of what he's saying, which makes me think about the word faith. Um, whether it's you or John or those who have what we call faith in a creator God, uh, there's ultimately, um, there's a move that is beyond that which is empirically provable. I think you'd acknowledge that, right? I would I mean, acknowledge that. People but advance I, evidence. I'll come back to that. <laughs> okay, so, so come back to that. Um, so, you know, I studied a lot of theology and maybe, maybe I'm just impatient, but um, there's a lot of speculation that goes on in theology. And I finally got to this point, where, you know, why are people spending so much time talking about what they can't possibly know? I mean, the, the flippant way to put it is how many angels are, can sit on the head of a pin? And of course that's a silly way to put the point, but it's not a silly point. Um, I think epistemological humility or humility about how we know and the limits of our knowledge just leads me to step back and say, this universe is a great mystery in terms of those causes. Nothing, there's no adequate evidence to explain the exist, why there's existence and why there's not not existence. And I just fall humbly silent on that question at this point. Um, and, but part of the question is why, 
Uh, and part of, the, part of the answer for me is um, life's too short to spend a lot of time fussing about that, which is beyond our puny little human minds. So those who somehow manage to retain faith, uh, I wish I could, uh, but to be honest and authentic, just as a human being trying to figure things out on earth, I just finally said, Brian, you don't have it. Whether it's that, you know, you didn't get the, the, the I've had arguments with my evangelical brother about this, you know, maybe I just didn't get the, the faith gene in the la or a strong enough version of it, you know, in, in the final analysis. But I just can't, you know, there's so much that I love on this planet. Um, I just don't find it worthwhile to spend a lot of time trying to figure out uh, something that I think is just at least uh, in history and in the near term is going to be is is beyond us. Now, maybe uh, somebody will devise, devise the um, the experiment that will prove it. Uh, I doubt it, and I'm open-minded, um, and maybe I will have that kind of experience that some religious people talk about that provides um, uh, for them incontrovertible evidence of the existence of a divine being. Um, I've been a seeker my whole life, and I just haven't had such an experience. Moreover, there's a lot of very interesting evidence uh, that I teach about in a course on religion and nature theory that, that, that at least comes up with plausible hypotheses about why people come to believe in what are usually, if not always, invisible divine beings or uh, being. And uh, this isn't a, sem a class seminar. We can get into this, these kinds of uh, scientific understandings or hypotheses about why people believe in invisible divine beings. But I... I actually find have come to find those more plausible than the portrait of a divine being presented uh, by the world's predominant religions, whatever they are. So that's just where I'm at in the, that kind of agnostic, uh, and I would argue humble, epistemologically humble place when it comes to that. But the but but it's also in part because you know I I, I think you know as uh, important works have said, we see through, we see the world through dark glasses. Um, when I look at many of the biblical themes, many of them really don't, uh, they're ambivalent or even hostile to certain aspects of the natural world. And so then I wonder, well, if, if this tradition is presenting divine truths, why are they why does it uh, work against that which I care so deeply about in so many ways? Um, you know, well, it's understandable in lots of ways, you, you know, that an agricultural people would develop antipathy toward predators and other organisms that threaten their crops or their pastoral animals. I mean, I understand that. It's understandable from a... Uh, evolutionary perspective, but it's, it doesn't reflect uh, an ecological worldview where there's value in all of the parts, as Aldo Leopold uh, put it so wisely. Um, so that bothers me, you know, uh, and it just makes me wonder. And then, you know, 
a lot of people celebrate and, and good on them if they can pull this off. But, and initially I found this uh, delightful. You know, you take the, no the Noah story and you say, well, look, you know, first of all, God does the creation. He says, it's all good, right? And then look, in the big Noah story, God makes sure that all the animals get on the ark. Uh, there's a biodiversity, a pro-biodiversity argument here. So my initial reaction was good. That's a, that's a way to help inspire Christians and Jews and Muslims to, to embrace environmental values. And then I thought more about it. I thought, well, wait a second, that's actually an, an environmental horror story. Because of the wickedness of one species, you destroy countless organisms and ecosystems, and there's nothing in there about the plants. So, you know, there's certainly not a kind of a, a pro-ecosystem and all that dwell therein in that story. To me, it's, a, it's, a, it's an environmental horror story. So that, that raises the theodicy question. Why would a good God who created this world and loves it do this? Why would a good God do this in a way that destroys all these innocent organisms? Um, that's incomprehensible to me. Um, and just like the story where God wants a father to show his loyalty by killing his son, the father in me, I've got three kids, you know, as I think most people recoils at that. And I think, why would a good God do that? You know, insist on loyalty. I mean, honestly, it reminds me of Trump, you know, <laughs> that kind of uh, uh, fetish on loyalty. Is, is that the character of somebody that I think is worthy of friendship, let alone veneration or worship? And i find myself saying, no, that's not, you know, why would I w worship a being who isn't, you know, better than me when I'm having a good day and being a nice guy? You know, that doesn't make sense to me. So no. I'm being a little flippant, but just to make the point, this is, you know, I mean, I would have loved to have been able to stay in that comforting space of the evangelical world. Um, Brian, uh, you're raising so many questions and our time is running out and I don't have time to deal with all of them. Of course. Um, so let me, uh, let me just say a few things and I shouldn't take the time to do this, but I, when you mentioned Lauren Isley, I can't, going, going back to my original point about the mystery of, of things, I remember a wonderful scene uh, from uh, the immense journey. He talks about being in a, a waste place somewhere in the Badlands uh, where there was nothing living and seeing a flight of birds fly over. And uh, he realizes they're made out of just the, the, the same dead chemicals that are lying around him, but, but they're alive. And he uh, walks back to the uh, camp later that night. Somebody says, did you see anything? And he said, I think a miracle. <laughs> and uh, yeah. in another book, The, uh, the uh, Firmament of Time, he, which he, he, he describes the growth of, envir of uh, our, our scientific understanding there's a chapter called How, um, uh, How the World Became Natural, talking about uh, cosmological and geological evolution, uh, how, um, how life became natural, talking about uh, uh, Dar Darwinism, how death became natural, talking about the fact of extinction, how man became natural, looking at uh, human evolution, and then a wonderful final chapter with the title, How Natural is Natural? and recognizing there is a kind of paradoxicality in reducing everything to ultimately to kind of random events. We still, once you've explained everything, you still live in the middle of a miracle. And I think um, 
I, I appreciate very much the, uh, the, the way uh, in dark green religion, you point out how many are, uh, are uh, responding to that miracle uh, in, in surfing or mountaineering experience or uh, reflecting a kind of longing in a film like Avatar. Um, so uh, I'll move on from that. Um, the question of course of, of, of proof of the existence of God, well, you're, nothing important can be proven incontrovertibly. Um, and, uh, and so I, 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 I follow the, uh, I guess the Augustinian and Anselmian uh, position that says, I believe in order to understand, faith is the basis for knowledge in science as well as in, uh, as well as in everything else in, in religion. Um, but perhaps my most important uh, comment uh, is re reminded to when the little thing in the corner of my computer popped up, reminding me that tomorrow is Good Friday. Um, we're having this conversation on not only April Fool's Day, which is interesting in itself, uh, but on Monday Thursday, which is uh, uh, you know the, the beginning of uh, the Passion Week, um, and when you say life is too short to spend your time um, talking about an invisible God and problems that you, things that you can't answer. Um, I guess the reason I'm a Christian is that, um, is that the, um, this distant invisible God has become flesh and dwelt among us. Um, has, uh, has entered our story. Um, and, and what is clear in the events of Good Friday leading to the resurrection is that the kind of God we thought, and you could easily get this impression from much many of the Old Testament texts, uh, this, this distant, cruel God is a God who suffers, who, um, who humbles himself. In fact, I mean, the key, key biblical text is that, is that the, the one who was equal with God humbled himself. You, you argue very, very eloquently for the, value, for the need for ecological humility. But the center of my faith is a creator who humbled himself. Who, who let things unfold, who let things be. His power is shown in, in letting, uh, letting creation be, upholding it, but letting it develop in its own way, uh, letting humans do their own thing. Um, and I think that explains some of that, uh, I think, archetypal and in some sense mythological story of Noah um, that humans, that God's, the result of, certainly the flood is an ecological catastrophe, but we're living in the middle of an ecological cat catastrophe brought about by human beings. And in that sense, um, the, uh, there, there is, there's a, there's a strong parallel that, uh, that film that was done recently on Noah I got a lot of things right. Actually, I know Christians didn't like it, but it was it was humans that had caused the problem, and 
And this takes me again to a, a central point I want to make. Um, yes, we are a part of nature. Yes, we share genes, ancestry with every living thing. But there is something unique and special about human beings. Um, it's you who are writing the book on dark, dark green religion. It's you who are doing these surveys. You, a human being with passions and convictions. Um, I was privileged to go to the Earth Summit in 1992. And the most important thing I got from that great conference was only humans came. Uh, sure, we've messed up the planet, but we're the only ones who seem to be concerned about it. Um, and like it or not, there seems to be something special about the human condition. And the specialness is our ability to, to feel empathetically, to be not only conscious, but to have a conscience. And, uh, and the way in which that conscience should act, should, should, should behave is shown by the example of, of Christ on the cross, um, I, of, a, of a God who enters, becomes completely vulnerable, uh, suffers in order to, uh, to make a new creation, um, a renewed well, creation, not an old one thrown away. New creation doesn't mean throwing the old one away, it means restoring. So I'll stop there, but that's kind of where I, where yeah. I stand. You know, uh, I, I was long enough deeply into this uh, world to her, have heard versions of that and you uh, make it eloquently. Um, as, as a religious studies scholar, um, I've noticed, of course, that sacrifice is a big part of the world's religious patrimony. And in the Christian tradition, uh, based on Judaism, blood sacrifice of innocence is a big part of the tradition. Um, Jesus was a blood sacrifice in the Orthodox Christian tradition for the sins of humankind, uh, either individuals as a whole, depending on your theology. And I just, uh, I just really can't get my brain around the idea that a loving God would demand blood sacrifice. Um, it just... Well, yeah, I can't. I can't either. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very good criticism. Um, the point of the, the point of Easter, the point of the crucifixion, is that the the God who set the universe up sacrifices Himself. That He is the sacrifice, and that we participate uh, in that in the, in the. The Eucharist, the communion meal, it's instituted on the day the Christians celebrate today, Monday, Thursday, um, that, that we participate in God's self-giving, self-sacrificial love for creation that makes creation possible. Um, blood sacrifice is a mistake, uh, and yet it's something that human beings have been drawn to because of their sense of mystery, vulnerability, guilt. Um, the, uh, the, the cross is the ultimate answer to that long human mistake because it's, it's the creator. So 
I don't see that as a, as a very solid criticism. Uh, I wonder fact, if I could interject something here that kind of help uh, the, the audience be a little self-critical. We we're trying to help uh, evangelicals and other conservative Christians care more for uh, the environment and the challenges we find ourselves in and hopefully tap into the best of their religious tradition to do so. Um, uh, Lauren, to you first, and then Braun, as a former evangelical, if you have some thoughts on this, what doctrines or ideas within the Christian tradition are fueling this lack of interest uh, in environmental care? Uh, what comes to mind for me is this kind of hierarchical understanding of the creation where we're at the top of the food chain and everything else is for our use, if not abuse, uh, end times or eschatological views where everything is going to be destroyed anyway by fire. So let's just go ahead and, and use it up. Are, are there any other doctrines that contribute to that? And, and how are those misguided and how might, might we overcome those challenges within our own tradition, Lauren? And, and Brian, if you want to follow up on that. Sure. Well, those are, the, I think, the main ones. Um, I think the, uh, the idea that the earth is going to be destroyed is the result of people not, not reading the first page of the Bible and the last page, the last first page of the story and the last page, the first page repeatedly, this is very good. And that goodness has never been withdrawn or abrogated. Um, the last page, um, it's not a picture of earth and its inhabitants going to heaven. It's this highly pictorial language of heaven, the dwelling place of God coming to earth. Um, so we're talking about, um, about a, 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 a continuation, a restoration of God's good creation. And again, the hierarchical idea is that there is a certain element that we have to hold on to. And that I think is, it recognizes that we do have a somewhat unique position in creation because we're the only ones capable of messing it up to the degree that we are. But we're also the only ones capable of fully understanding what we're doing and doing something about it. Um, but the way to do something about it is not to make it all into our image. It's rather to let it be itself. Uh, through, um, through our own actions, which do have a sacrificial character, uh, modeled on the sacrificial character of the creator. Um, I, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I, I won't go into the peculiar shape of American uh, political evangelical alliance. I've been fortunate to be in, I mean, I, I'm still I'm a dual citizen, Canadian and American, but being in Canada for 40 years, uh, much deeper roots in, uh, in, in, in British Christianity, I, I can see the, the kind of toxic mix that, uh, that uh, American Christianity has gotten itself into. Ron, what are your thoughts on that as an ex-evangelical? Yeah, well, uh, definitely. Um, the, uh, I like what Lauren is saying about kind of understanding your tradition as envisioning a, a future restoration of harmony on this planet. Um, most of the world's religions involve an, 
a, a kind of a negative view of this world in, in one way. The mainstreams of the Abrahamic traditions promise divine rescue from this world to go someplace else, just to generalize a little bit. Of course, these traditions are very plural and diverse, but it's certainly- but that is a deep misunderstanding. It's the heresy, not the- Well, it's, it's, I think you would agree, it's a very prevalent idea in evangelicalism and conservative- well, it is, but, it, but it is a, mis a deep mistake. Yeah. Well, and, and in the Asian religious traditions, in my judgment, uh, are, are flawed in a kind of kindred, but somewhat different way that the, the world is a world of travail and suffering and, and to be enlightened or liberated from it, you have to change your consciousness, you know? Um, so there's still this kind of uh, uh, negative view of the world. So to the extent that religion promotes a kind of negative view of this world and envisions some kind of divine rescue from it, that's a problem. Um, and I think the way that you're understanding the tradition, Lauren, is a way uh, forward and out of that. There's, and there's let me just answer it. I, I didn't mean, I, I, I didn't oh. say this clearly enough. It seems to me the fundamental answer to get back to John's point to, to these criticisms is the theological term, but is the incarnation that, 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 that God has entered the good creation um, and you know, reaffirms its goodness in Christ. Well, you're, you're a really good example of how you can uh, work this tradition in a, a pro-environmental way. And, you know, uh, part of the, the, the challenge in doing this is, you know, when we study religions, we know that they're a bricolage, that people are patching, they assemble bits and pieces of different cultural things, sometimes with unique insights into something new. And when it comes to the, all the diversity within a religious tradition, that diversity comes from selectively selecting out different parts of the tradition and interpreting them in ways that one prefers or finds more compelling. Um, it, to put it in another way, it involves some cherry picking because nobody, these are broad traditions. You can't pay attention to everything. So I appreciate the fact that a good eco-theologian is creatively uh, cherry picking their tradition in a way that is pro-environmental. I applaud that and I, and I, I'm not, I don't mean to, to mean that in any way. Um, it's beyond me to say whether your interpretation is the right one, um, but I like yours. Uh, can, I, can I just insert though, the, the observation that a good scholar of uh, religion and culture is also cherry picking and uh, yeah. taking what, what, what seems to fit. And it seems to me that, that you've done that very well but you've left some important things out. Well, um, we're, we're all sure picking. Yeah, you're right. Scholar is always trying to guard against uh, what we call confirmation bias, whether it's wishful thinking or the very human tendency to just take note of that which already re which reinforces what you already think. So I at least do my best to try to guard against that kind of, um, you know, it's a kind of an intellectual practice to always be thinking about what's the contrary evidence to what I'm thinking right now. And that that's another form of epistemological humility. But I wanted to come back just for a minute to the notion of idolatry. Um, now, the best definition of idolatry I ever heard was in seminary where one of my professors said that idolatry is trusting in or relying on anything other than God. Now, there's lots of different ways to understand idolatry. And so I like that one better than I like some of the other ways in which it's taken that uh, pagans and animists, those who 
uh, venerate or see divinity in nature itself or in non-human organisms or entities are uh, spiritually dangerous and should be suppressed. And I think that there is a colonial legacy in the ways in which at least many streams of the Abrahamic traditions have been have taken that have suppressed those who have these feelings of and experiences of the sacredness of nature and its denizens that has been exceptionally harmful um, and uh, honestly imperialist. And so we have, you know, the example of Christians putting indigenous children into boarding schools so that they can be basically socialized out of their own religious traditions, these kind of horrific human rights, at least in hindsight, we can see these are horrific human rights violations. And some of that goes back to those, to those doctrines. And so how can we take, uh, and it's, a, you know, I mean, it's like the most important of the 10 commandments, right? Love your God and don't trust and rely on other divine beings that you might otherwise believe in. So how can such a fundamental notion be transfigured in a way that uh, promotes the kind of dialogues and mutual respect that you're doing, that we're having here cross-culturally uh, and also can ensure that those kinds of doctrines don't work against people who are ardent environmentalists. It's still the case, as you well know, that many environmentalists on the conservative side view anyone who uh, is an ardent environmentalist suspiciously. And then if they, see, if they see examples of the kinds of folks that I'm writing about in the Dark Green Religion book, um, they, they view them as spiritually and uh, perilous as some of the responses from conservative evangelicals uh, who write about my book. Um, I mean, they like it because it, it reinforces their view that, the, that there's these people out there that are dangerous and they need to be suppressed. Um, and, and, and so if we're going to reharmonize life on earth, we need alliances across these cultural divides that in various ways, people come to view the world, as you say, as a miracle. And I'm comfortable with that kind of terminology, uh, even though I'm profoundly agnostic uh, metaphysically because language of the sacred is an appropriate way to talk about that which you find most profoundly meaningful and for me also profoundly mysterious because I can't I can't figure out how to peel back the, the veil and you know see who's behind the curtain or if there is someone behind the curtain I, I leave that aside as I mentioned so anyway just a few riffs on on uh, the, the idolatry thing and, and 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 how we can come together in common cause to protect uh, a planet that we definitely agree uh, can be understood as sacred and worthy of reverent defense. Yeah, and I, I agree almost completely with uh, almost everything you say there, certainly with the way in which uh, Christians have tended to suppress or to be suspicious of, of the, the intimations of the sacred in the, in the natural world and call that idolatrous. But I would, I would understand that in a, in a way different from you, and you would reject the way I understand it, I think. And that is that uh, that that well, I, I go back to scripture here. Um, Paul and uh, usually Paul preaches in the book of Acts to he goes to the Jewish community, uh, but 
in a few cases, he goes to a pagan community. Uh, in Acts 14, um, uh, there's a, a, a group at, at Lystra, I think. Um, uh, they try, they, he, they do some, some healing and they try to, they think it's, it's Zeus and Mercury come down. And so they try to sacrifice to them. And, and they said, no, no, you're, you're just ordinary people like you. We come to tell you more about the God whom you already know. He's the one who uh, gives crops in their season, sends the rain, fills your hearts with joy. And I think the, the, the thing that Christians, especially these, these conservative evangelical Christians we're talking about need to learn is that um, the, the dark green religionists you're talking about have paid more attention to uh, one of the revelations of God, the creator, than they have. And we need to listen seriously. Um, and, and, and yet we listen from the perspective of, yes, and I'll tell you more. Mm -hmm. And the more is that this is the God who has come among us in Christ um, and seeks the, the restoration and the healing of the whole creation. But uh, the, what's the word from the Psalms? Uh, the, 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 the word about the creator has gone out through the whole creation, through creation. And um, the, the people you're writing about, the, the surfers and the, and, the, and the wilderness experience people, I've heard that message a lot clearer than most Christians and we need to learn from them. Um, I'm, my, my t-shirt here. Galliano Conservancy uh, is an organization. Let's see, where is it? Yeah. Galliano Conservancy. I think it's reversed. Uh, it's a, it's a environmental organization on the island here, composed, I suppose, of pagan animus. I've been a board member for 30, 40 years. At the same time, I work with Arasha, a wonderful Christian organization, doing a lot the same thing. And they work with groups of every faith uh, to try to heal creation because that's their understanding of part of the gospel. And that's, that's how I feel as well. Well, I'm glad there are uh, folks like you that are doing that. I'd be happy to, uh, if the occasion provided, to link arms to defend some old growth, uh, dug fir, uh, and their forests. And you know, these kinds of uh, alliances are exceptionally important. And and yet, as someone who's worked at the intersection of uh, you know indigenous traditions and uh, the world's religions, I just know how fragile these relationships are because there's so much pain uh, given these fraught histories between these groups. So one of the things that um, in my judgment, uh, Christians with a heart for nature can be doing is in humility, building bridges to those communities that are uh, uh, still often fighting for their lands and their sovereign rights and uh, for um, keeping healthy and resilient the ecosystems that that they've been uh allowed to keep uh by the dominant more. <laughs> absolutely yeah um well gentlemen we've been going for about an hour now and i know we could just keep going on and on uh, i would love to see this uh i do work with uh multnomah university and uh they're related new wine, new wineskins, and they do a lot of social and cultural issues. I would love to see something like this developed into an online conference where we have 
additional, you folks and additional participants uh, on both sides of this issue and, and just explore a lot of different issues related to this. But as we close, can you recommend a, a few resources from each of your positions on this issue that folks uh, might seek out? And I can link to those in the program notes that go with the podcast. Off the yeah, top well, of my head, it's hard, um, but I'll let you go first, Bron. Okay, well, folks could visit my website, which is just my name, brontaylor.com, B-R-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. It's fairly up to date. I've recently started um, to put some lectures online. Um, most recently, there's one on uh, kinship. And I noticed uh, in, in your writing, Lauren, you talk about kinship. And I think this sense that we are deeply related one with another, including our own species, but also beyond it is exceptionally important. And I, uh, this particular lecture is called Kinship Through the Senses, the Arts and the Sciences. And you get at least a hint in it of how I think one can construct uh, and arrive at a deep kinship ethics from, from the natural law. And I think that's actually compatible with with longstanding tradition of natural law in uh, Christianity, at least not all Christians have a natural law theology, but it's prevalent in, in Paul, as you suggest. Um, and that actually, that natural law position provides a base for alliance, common finding common ground, even if uh, in the views of Christians, non-Christians are not going to get the, the agopic uh, supernatural values. There's so much we can agree on if we approach one another in the world uh, with humility. And so I really appreciate that. So anyway, my website, uh, the Dark Green Religion book is, is widely available now and including in, in, uh, in German translation and soon in uh, Mandarin. So um, there's ways in which uh, one can uh, learn more about these kindred social movements that may not be Christian, but um, that have a sense of the sacredness of the world, uh, perhaps in arriving there in different ways than might a Christian, but, uh, but sharing you know, to a very significant extent the basic sense that, that life is a miracle that deserves reverent defense. Um, yeah, thanks. I don't, I don't have a website. I'm beginning to think I need to join the 21st century and do that. <laughs> uh, I did mention to both of you a, a, I, a film that a, a colleague of mine who used to work for the BBC did in which I, it kind of presents my, the view that I've been trying to outline here. And I think you can get it through the Regent College uh, website called uh, Making Peace with Creation. It's a hour long film and pretty well done as a film, uh, even though there's an awful lot of me in it, um, but it gives a lot of sense of, the, of, of these issues. Um, a couple of books recently, one, one that is, I think, quite interesting, um, and I, I mentioned it to you, uh, the Earthkeeping book that you mentioned, it came out of a Calvin Center study, uh, Center for Christian Scholarship, uh, was published in 1980, and a group of uh, scholars got together and did a kind of 40th anniversary, um, I hate to call it, it's not a celebration, although it is, it does, you know, it says nice things about the book, but it, it's called Beyond Stewardship. And it's pointing out the weaknesses of the stewardship idea and the stewardship tradition and drawing on a lot of the things that you're talking about, uh, kinship, uh, ecological justice, uh, uh, 
the way Christianity has been tied to colonialism and so forth. And I agree with all of those essays. They, in fact, I wrote a, 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 an afterward for the book, but that's very good. It's, it's called Beyond Stewardship. I think it's Calvin University Press. Um, there's another, uh, another book uh, actually with Earthkeeping in the title by Steve Boma Prediger called, uh, I think an Earthkeeping Ethic. And it uses the value, it uses the value uh, um, the, the virtues tradition from uh, kind of a Christianization of the virtues tradition. Um, and then, uh, well, I, I'm looking at a whole shelf of books here. You don't want to get me started. I, 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 there's an awful lot of books, uh, that, uh, resources, that we, sure. and I'm coming near the end of the book I've been writing for about 40 years. Well, when um, you get the book done, you should definitely get a website. So well, we I'm can, thinking about it. So we uh, can actually, let, me, let me leave you with one, one image. Um, which is in the title of the book, the tentative title of the book, which is Circles and the Cross. Um, this, is, uh, this is the Celtic cross, uh, an image associated with, uh, with Celtic Christianity, which in my view is not particularly Celtic, it's just mere Christianity. Um, but what I mean by that title, Circles and the Cross, is what's shown so powerfully in this symbol. And that is that the circle, which relates, which it implies a lot of things, the, our connectedness, the totality of, of creation, creation in general, the connect, the, 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 the linking of things, the interconnected thickness of things is upheld by the cross. The cross is bigger and the cross is a symbol of what Christians celebrate starting today. And that is the, the self-giving love of God that is at the heart of the cycles of creation. And so I leave that image with you as a kind of um, memory that we're doing this on uh, on, on Monday Thursday. Um, tomorrow is Good Friday, but also a picture of um, not the Abrahamic, invisible, distant God, but the God who 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 came among us, who upholds creation, we can, which we can experience uh, in and through Christ. And I apologize for closing with a sermon. You can give a comparable sermon to <laughs> to Brian. <laughs> John, can I just also add that, um, you know, I, I just by my name, I'm at Twitter, um, Bron Taylor at Twitter. I welcome people to, to uh, join me there. And on Facebook, if on Facebook, though, send me a note if any of your listeners want to uh, find me there, because uh, I don't accept every in invitation. But on Facebook, because my roots are so deeply in this tradition, I have so many good friends who uh, remain within the evangelical fold that we end up with some pretty interesting conversations uh, that are generally quite civil also. And so if, other, if others want to kind of get out of their, a little bit more out of their comfort zone and their intellectual, their usual intellectual milieu, those would be good places to find me. The other thing I'm going to, uh, I want to recommend the Center for Humans and Nature um, and the podcast, to the best of our knowledge, where a lot of this kind of wrestling with nature and spirituality is go is ongoing, and I'm going to go, John. I don't know exactly when this is going to air, but if you'll tell me when it airs, shortly before that, I'm going to put up an essay that is at the Center for Human and Nature site, and I'm going to just put it out there on Twitter again. It's it's called Evolution and Kinship Ethics, which shows how folks who uh, how one can surmise using natural law, basically, and which includes, of course, the ecological and evolutionary sciences, um, a robust social and environmental ethics, or at least get one started, at least get some of the basic stuff. 
Um, and I think that provides a basis for some pretty interesting cross-cultural conversations. So uh, I really appreciate what you're doing here. Um, it's exceptionally important that we have uh, difficult conversations across all sorts of social divides. And John, you are uh, a unique person uh, willing to take that on because it takes courage uh, and a lot of hard work. And I really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Well, I appreciate both of you coming on and uh, I didn't quite, I'm gonna just be uh, transparent here. Uh, I didn't know how this conversation was gonna go. We had a lot of back and forth. There's just so much information, uh, a lot of areas of agreement and disagreement, but I knew you two uh, had known each other and appreciated each other's work and would come on and, and model the kinds of conversations that we wanna have here. My hope is that evangelicals and other conservative Christians would, uh, would do their best to be self-critical and uh, listen to what you gentlemen have had to say, seek out some of these resources, have conversations with people across difference on the environment and, uh, and be open. We've only got one environment to live in. Uh, I don't care if Elon Musk or NASA or anybody else thinks we're gonna be able to, to live on other planets in the near future. I just don't see it. And we got, we got to take care of this uh, planet that we're all living on here. So. Let's tap into the best of science and the best of our religious traditions and talk across difference to, to make that happen. So again, I'm really appreciative. I will include uh, links to uh, what you gentlemen have done and have suggested here in the program notes. And uh, I hope we can do it again at a conference or another podcast in the future.